open up your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 7, Judges uh, chapter 17 rather. I'm going to teach you a famous story out of the Bible, and if you have never heard this story before, I promise you by the end of today, you will never forget it. Go to Judges chapter 17 verse 1. Ten shekels, clothes, and a shirt. The book of Judges is the time frame between the exodus out of uh, Egypt and before they begin to have kings in the promised land. They are now just settling in the promised land because of what Joshua had did, but they really haven't established their kingdom, the kingdom of Israel yet. And it's a lot to do with their disobedience. And so during this time, the judges were raised up to be the prophets of the land, to be like figures of Moses and Joshua, to give them instruction and wisdom and guidance. However, even as we find out, the judges themselves were even wicked at times and didn't do things right. So they weren't great examples. So if you look to the book of Judges to find examples of character, you won't really find a lot there. Even Samson, one of the most famous judges, had terrible, terrible character. You would not want to be like him. And so we're going to enter into the world of the judges. It's after God's deliverance. They're in the promised land, but they're nowhere near to occupying it and being the kind of people they're supposed to be. And what we see is that they're living almost in what we would call the Wild West. If you can think about that in our American history, it's basically where everything goes. You can do whatever you feel is right in your own eyes. You're going to hear about four main characters in this story. You're going to hear about Micah, his mother, who we never really have named, and then you're going to hear about a Levite who gets named at the end. His name is Jonathan. And then these people called the Danites. So you're going to learn about Micah, his mother, a Levite named Jonathan, and the Danites. If you're in Judges chapter 17, verse 1, somebody say, I'm there. Thank you. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. <laughs> so this is how the story starts out, is a young man stole about 1,100 shekels from his mother. His mother then uttered a curse. And then he comes back to his mother and says, hey, uh, I heard you utter a curse, and I know I shouldn't have done this. I feel guilty. It was me. How many know times are bad if you're stealing from your mama? And that's the beginning of the story. So it's about ready to get a lot more strange than this. So verse 3 continues on. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. Crazy once again. So she gets her silver back, and in that sense, she's happy, and she says, I want to praise God, and I want to dedicate it to the Lord. But instead of going to where the priests were at, wherever they were traveling around at that time and had settled, like I said, the, the places of uh, worship had not really come about yet. Their kingdom had not been made. There was somewhat of a traveling tabernacle at this time. The temple had not been built. That's going to come long afterwards. And we know that she at least knew not to make an idol out of it. So she could have given it to a good cause if she wanted to dedicate it to the Lord. But what she does is says, I'm going to dedicate it to the Lord, but in my dedication to God, I'm going to make an idol. I'm going to make an image. And she knew better because the Ten Commandments had talked about having no other God before the God of Israel. Now, maybe to get around this, as you'll begin to see, because she's using the name of the Lord there in Hebrew, it's Yahweh, when she refers to the Lord, maybe she was going to try to pull one like they did in the desert when they took all of their earrings and their jewelry out and gave it to Aaron and said, make an image for us to worship the God who brought us out of Egypt. So she might say, well, I'm not breaking the command to have another God, but in fact, she was making a, uh, breaking the command to make an idol to worship her God. Does everybody see that? 
It's a crazy story. A man steals money from his mother, gives it back. The mother then says, I dedicate it to God, but I'm going to make an image out of it. Verse 4, so after he returned the silver to his mother, she took the 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith. So she doesn't even give all of it to the silversmith. She gives 200 shekels. How much was stolen? 1,100 shekels. Are you guys up this morning for Sunday school? So she only gives 200. So she only consecrates a little bit of it. Who used it to make an idol, and it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an, uh, an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Somebody say, that's right. So then Micah takes whatever his mother gave him and says, Mama, I'm going to add to this image some gods from the neighborhood. So they were living among the pagans because they had not totally got rid of all of the pagans. That was part of their disobedience. And, and Jesus had warned them that if you don't get rid of the pagan nations, then you'll start worshiping their gods, marrying their, their people, and you will lose the uniqueness that I've called you to. And here we see an Israelite is now worshiping other gods. He said, I'm going to put some more gods with this image. What a mess. It gets even worse. Verse 7 a young Levite. Now, this means he's from the tribe of Levi, and he's called by God to be a priest, and he should be with his people. But a young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to live. So now we hear about just a wandering priest. He's supposed to stay by his people. They're supposed to be taking care of the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle, which we don't even know if it was technically set up at that time. They were moving it around so much and doing things the wrong way. So we're only left to assume that it was a mess where he was at, but at least it was his mess, and he was supposed to stay there and clean it up. But at some point, he just gets bored and says, I don't like pastoring or leading or being a priest around here. I'm going to look for a another place to do this. He's an opportunist. So he goes in search for something else to do. On his way, he came to Micah's house. Look at that. Birds of like feathers always find each other to, fo- to flock together. Are you not- do you notice that in life? Messy people always find other messy people. I'll know real quick in this church if you're a messy person, if you start hanging out with the other messy people. So here he stumbles upon Micah's house, the guy who had stolen money from his mama, took an image, put it in his house, mixed it with some gods, and then made his son a priest over all of that false religion he was doing. So now he runs into Micah in the hill country of Ephraim, verse 9. Micah asked him, where are you from? He said, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Well, what do you think Micah's going to say? Well, I've got a place for you right here. Live with me and be my father and priest, and I will give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. Some may say 10 shekels. Some may say clothes. And some may say food. Amen. Now we see the deal with this priest. This wandering leader is now brought in to become a leader to this family of this false worship, of these false gods, and here's the deal. He'll do it for 10 shekels of silver a year. He'll do it as long as his clothes are provided and if he gets some food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. So he was young, but this man wanted him to be like a father. And here we see that pagan tradition to make priests father. This was not the way the priests were to be looked at in the house of Israel, but that's the way the pagans did. So even though he was the age of one of his sons, he became like a spiritual father that had to intercede to these gods for him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, that's the word for our God, the God of Israel. Listen to how deceived he is. He says, now I know the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. He literally sees all of these events, this entire mess, as a confirmation of God's goodness. 
I stole from my mom, but when I gave it back, she let me off easy. She then gave me some money to make an image with. That was perfect because it matched with my other gods. And then when I was having my son just filling for the priest, lo and behold, God sends me a Levite, and now I've got church. I know God has been good to me and will continue to be good to me. Let's stop here before we get into the Danites. You've met the three characters already, Micah, his mother, the Levite. Do we see application already into our modern times? Let's just think about it. Do you already see the application that people are worshiping God in their own ways? They're taking it upon themselves to make images that they say represent Jesus of the Bible, but really the images that they're making are a false Jesus. And then they get pastors and leaders and people around them to worship that false Jesus, and then they think that's good because if it wasn't good, God wouldn't have given us the money for the building. God wouldn't have given us the priest or the leader. God wouldn't have given us the image. All of this that we see is a confirmation God is with us. Not only do we point to the religion of Oprah Winfrey and see that she believes this, look at all the good that God has given her. Look at all the things that have come from her secret, which is basically positive affirmation and her religion of, you know, speaking things into existence. And she would say, look at how good it's worked for me. I have made so much money. I have influenced so many lives. I have so many people that look up to me. God has been good to me. But it's not only for those that I'm concerned and the reason why I'm preaching this today. I'm preaching this for the modern church. I see so often the modern church calling something Jesus that really isn't Jesus at all. It's really just a collaboration or a buffet of all the gods of this world. I don't know if you've seen what's going on right now with different churches but they're starting to confess that being homosexual is a part of God's original intent and that this is acceptable before God. And they're starting to say that churches that don't marry the same sex or accept those who are transgender, that they are in fact worshiping a false God. So they would say, my God is a God of love. And that's why we marry those of the same gender. That's why we believe that homosexuality is not a sin. And so now, how do we discern between their version of Christianity and our version? If everyone's just doing whatever they feel right in their own eyes, then really maybe there's no way to discern. It's your opinion versus my opinion. Your truth, my truth. We all have a truth. We all have a narrative. Imagine coming up to this Levite during this time and asking him, what are you doing? He would say, I'm worshiping God. And you would say, no, I'm not. You would say, no, you're not. And he would say, yes, I am. And you would try to convince him from the scriptures. But he would probably say back to you, well, I don't see it that way. Well, I don't see it that way. Well, it might mean that to you, but it doesn't mean that to me. And then he may begin to try to prove his point by how successful he's been. Well, you say that we shouldn't do these things, and where's your temple? Where's your ephod? Where's your ten shekels? Where's your beautiful house of worship? And so what I see today is the problem is that people are judging religion, especially Christianity, based on its practical worth. They're judging on how good Christianity is based on how well it fulfills the goals of pragmatism. And pragmatism is tied hand in hand with humanism. And so pragmatism says, whatever works the best way, it must be the right way. So if we want to see people come into this church and we start doing things that cause people to leave the church, then it must not be right. Pragmatically, it's wrong. But if we start doing things that bring more people to the church, it doesn't matter how it goes against the Word of God, but at the end, if more people come to the church, then it must be right. Do you see how pragmatism has slipped into the church? 
And then it's tied with humanism. And humanism says, whatever makes mankind happy must be good. Whatever makes mankind happy must be good. So the chief end of man and why we're here on this planet is for our own happiness. Therefore, when you put it into the setting of the church, if you see people getting upset with what you're preaching, if you see that they're not happy, then you're not doing the right thing. But if what you're preaching is making people in the community happy, making people in the church happy, and gives you a great reputation because everybody's just so happy, 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 then what you're doing is right despite if it goes against the things of God. How would you speak to someone like that? What we must do is bring them back to the Word of God and say that the Word of God is not based on pragmatism. If it was, then Jesus was the worst. Jesus is not growing a church. Jesus is always losing a church. 5,000 come to get fed. A few lessons later, 5,000 basically are leaving. Jesus is the worst of failures because the Jewish leaders didn't accept him. The Roman leaders didn't accept him. He had no political clout. He had no large Twitter following. He wasn't brought onto the shows of that day and brought into the entertainment sphere. He was crucified on a cross. And the disciples are even worse than Jesus. Because the churches that they planted, by the time we get to the book of Revelation and we hear Jesus give them a checkup, almost all of them are getting negative reviews. As a matter of fact, he's speaking to some of the church saying that I wish you would choose to be hot or cold because you make me puke when you're lukewarm. Boy, the disciples must have been failures because pragmatically their churches were not becoming mega successes. They were not fitting in with the Romans and the Greeks. Jesus wasn't the kind of person that you would want to have at an interfaith dialogue. He would ruin it. He would say things like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So was Jesus a failure? He wasn't pragmatically successful. Was he a failure? He wasn't good at humanism. As a matter of fact, 11 out of his 12 followers all ended up being tortured, and 10 of them all died a miserable death. John was the only one who got to live to the end of his life, but he was boiled alive and exiled to an island. Come follow me. That's what he said. And what did he tell them? Pick up the cross. He was saying right from the beginning, this wasn't about making you happy. Come follow me. Take up your cross and deny yourself. And so we see in this story as we get to learn now about the Danites is that there are so many applications that I'm concerned about at this time in our culture that when we should be at our most strongest as Christians, the most on alert, the most ready to give an answer for our faith according to the Word of God, I feel like we are the most deceived than we have ever been. I feel like we have traded the Word of God for pragmatism and humanism because Christianity is not about what you get out of God, but what God gets out of you. This is not about the chief end to make you happy. The chief end of Christianity is to give God glory. We are to give our lives to his glory, and we are to do whatever it takes, whether we die or suffer in the process. Yes, as a byproduct, God may bless some of us in material ways. Yes, as a byproduct, we may experience a joy that the world can look at. But sometimes our joy may not be what the world wants. The world looks, like the, looks at the suffering right now of the, the church in North Korea and concentration camps. They don't want that. They want a joy that comes by the flesh, not a deep inward-seated joy. They look at the persecution of the, of the Christians and Muslim nations right now, and they may think to themselves, I don't want to do that, stupid Christian. Just get along with everybody. And so I want to ask you today, as we get ready to conclude this story 
and make more application as I'm reading this last part. What are you in Christianity for? Are you here just to make your family happy? Well, that's about ready to change in this culture. Because when you start coming to churches like this, you're going to make your, your family unhappy. They're going to get upset with you. What are you doing going to that church? Why are you listening to that preacher? Don't you know there's another pastor over here that's got ten shekels and a shirt and some food, and he'll be your priest and father? I'm not saying I'm the only one, but I'm saying there are few and far and in between who cannot be bald or sold that are standing in the pulpit right now. Now yeah, there's another priest waiting for you. He's been waiting for you to make a deal. Don't you talk about my past and what I've been through and what I'm doing now and all the compromises I'm making, and I won't talk about your past, all you're doing, and all the compromises you're making. We'll make a deal. Give me 10 shekels, and I'll be your tap-dancing preacher. That's what the world wants. The world wants a religious leader that they can say is sinful just like me. Instead of looking to the priest and the Levite as a person of holiness, that if they were even unclean a bit by just touching a dead animal or a dead person coming into the Holy of Holies, they themselves could be killed. The, the holiness standard that was upon them, that even if they had to wear glasses or began to lose their eyesight, they couldn't serve anymore. This standard was, was so high that it was only few and far and in between could be a priest. No, forget about all that. Now we can be a priest however we want, do whatever we want as long as there's willing people to pay us. It used to be to stand behind a pulpit like this, the pastor had to be a man of God. The husband about one wife, full of integrity and morality. Now you've got pastors divorcing, switching wives like they switch suits, a trail of broken relationships in their life. No purity, no holiness. You used to have to know the sound doctrine of the Scripture to be able to express it to others and to teach it to others. Now all you have to do is just keep telling people about how God's going to make them happy, how God's going to bless them, how God's going to get them out of their trouble, and then you'll get a following. And as long as the priest goes along with whatever narrative's being pushed by the world, they'll accept him and applaud him. I was listening to Carl Lentz from Hillsong meet with an African-American on YouTube, and it's called Uncomfortable Talks with a Black Man. I would recommend all of you to watch that. After you've then puked, then I would ask you to watch the interview with Ali. Uh, a, a, uh, how do you say her name? A-L-L-I-E. Ali. So I said it right, Ali. I was thinking like, the road, uh, like a street there. But then watch, after you've puked, watching Carl Lentz, then watch Ali interview Vodi Bakum another African-American leader, and tell me which one is selling themselves out for 10 shekels in a shirt. But anyways, while I was listening to the video or, or watching it, I scrolled down with the one with Carl Lentz, and all of a sudden, there's a comment that's hidden there in the feed, and you have to know to, to understand why it's important. It was from a homosexual, and it basically said, we understand that you want to compromise and be all about the Black Lives Matter movement, but you're still a bigot because you don't accept the lesbian, the gay, the homosexual, the transgender in your church and marry them. And then he said to the host, you ought to cancel him and not have him back. It seemed like a small voice because all the other comments were, oh, Carl, we've needed to hear this. The church just needs to hear this. I've got goosebumps. I'm crying right now listening to this. But you see, there was somebody a little bit more woke that wanted to chat in and go, hold on, you're not, you're not woke enough, Carl. And we're going to come cancel you. See, you can never make the world happy. You can never really make the world happy because what you're going to find out is that when you try to make the world happy, you're always going to have to dance another dance. They're always going to come up with something else that now you've got to do. And they're going to keep changing the tune. And so now we get into the story and we see that these guys called the Danites come around. They're a wandering tribe. You can scroll down quite a bit. And they run into the priest and they're out pillaging people. And he, they asked the priest, how will it go for us on our pillaging? And the priest says, oh, it's going to go great, just hoping that it does go great, so then he can make some friends with these guys. Now look at verse 14. 
Then the five men who spied out the land of Lash said to their fellow Danites, Don't you know that one of these houses has an ephod? Hey, guys, we're out pillaging, but I ran into a priest over here, and there's an ephod, there's some household gods, and an image overlaid with silver. Now you know what to do. (laughs) Oh, man, they said, look, these guys over here got some stuff. It looks nice. You know what to do. Go and get it. So they turned in there, went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. And granted, they had already used him as a priest to get their good word. Now they're about ready to capture him and take all of his stuff. Watch. Verse 16. The 600 Danites armed for battle stood at the entrance of the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside, took the idol, the ephod, the highest household gods, while uh, while the priests and the 600 men stood at the entrance of the gate. When the five men went into Micah's house and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, the priest said to them, what are you doing? We'll know his name at the end is Jonathan. He's the Levite. He's like, guys, uh, excuse me, Uh, this stuff belongs to Micah. What are you doing here? You're you're stealing the ephod that was given to me to be a priest. You're stealing the image that was made out of the, uh, the silver that was stolen. You're stealing the gods that were added in by Micah. What are you doing? Now look at verse 19. They answered him, be quiet, don't say a word, come with us, be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and a clan in Israel uh, as a, isn't it better that you serve a tribe and a clan in Israel as priests rather than just one man's household? Look at verse 20. This, uh, the priest was very pleased by this. Isn't that something? There goes his loyalty to Micah. Micah had brought him in and struck up a deal. I'll give you 10 shekels a year. I'll give you clothes. I'll give you food. Be a priest and a father to me. Now the Danites come in more threatening a bigger army, and they say, listen, don't say a word, but come with us. Isn't that what the culture is saying to the pastors now? Don't say a word, but just come with us. Isn't it better to be on Dr. Phil than to be preaching in a storefront church? So T.D. Jakes, don't say a word, but come with us. Isn't it better to be on Oprah than to be in a storefront church? So Carl Lentz, don't say a word, but come with us. Be our priest. Be our token Christian. Be the one that we drag around and make feel like our lifestyle is approved. Isn't that something about how many famous preachers are selling out to be in cahoots with the bigger ones? Why? Because they already sold out when they were the smaller ones. They were already compromising. And now when the big tent came, the circus came to town, they said, I'll be your clown. I'll be your clown. I'll put on the the red nose. I'll put on the, the makeup and entertain you. And we wonder why the church can't speak up now. Why? Because it's not something that just started when you saw them on Oprah trying to get along with her worldview of pragmatism and humanism. It didn't start when you just saw them show up to do one of those interviews. No, it happened a long while back where they began to think to themselves, I'm a better pastor if I have more people. I'm a better leader if I have more followers. And it's not just for them. It's also for you and I. Have you ever thought to yourself, if someone gets mad when I preach the gospel, I must have did something wrong. See, that's pragmatism and humanism. That's not Christianity. I'm not saying we're supposed to be intentionally offensive, but there is an offense of the gospel. I've been preaching on the streets for over 22 years. It's getting close to 23 years now. And without fail, whenever I meet new people, who want me to train them how to do evangelism, I can already tell within the first few moments of me meeting them that if we make somebody mad, they're going to have a talk with me. Just the other day, we were at the abortion clinic. Some Moody students came by. They had some signs, and they were out preaching on their own, and uh, they asked if they can join us. I said, that would be wonderful, and they joined us. But I knew right away that they were not going to understand some of the conflict we were going to face out there. I just knew it. 
You might say, Joe, you were judging them. Yes, just like you judge a babysitter before you hire them. It's good to make judgments in life. Are you listening to me? And I could make a wrong judgment, and then I would have to ask God to forgive me. But I believe in the gift of discerning of spirits, discerning the spirit of people. But I welcomed them anyway because I knew it would be a teachable moment for them. Now, granted, they've probably been evangelizing all of three months. <laughs> But the moment there was a conflict, one of them had to come over and assume the position of teacher over me. Didn't ask the experience that I've had in preaching. Didn't stop to, 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 to query about maybe is there something she doesn't know? Help me understand. No, she came to take the position of teacher. And she said, don't you know that the scripture says that the man of God ought not to be quarrelsome? And I said, absolutely, I'm not quarrelsome. I'm teaching, correcting, rebuking, encouraging. To be quarrelsome is to argue for the argument's sake, for the sake of being right out of pride. Can it be a stumbling block for some preachers? Has it been one for me? Yes, and we'll repent when it comes upon us. But does that mean an argument in and of itself is always to be avoided? If that is true, then Jesus should not have been Jesus then. You're wanting Jesus to be a different kind of Jesus. In other words, you're more Christ-like than Christ if you think it's wrong to argue. Because Christ got into arguments. Christ got into debates. Paul got into debates. Apollos got into debates. Stephen got into debates. As a matter of fact, most of your New Testament uh, literature of the epistles are debates and crushing the false ideologies of that time. And yet she wanted to teach me. And so this is what I said to her gently I said, you didn't come here to teach me. If you want to work with us, you can. And then I explained to her what I explained to you just now by the scriptures. And then she stood around until the next conflict came, and then they scurried off. See, that's the way the world thinks, and now it's inside of Christianity. Oh, look at these street preachers. Look at this church. Look at this person on our job. She makes everybody happy, uh, angry whenever she talks about religion. But these other people make us happy. You guys need to be more like them and less like her or him. Have you ever had somebody say that on the job? Well, we've got other people here that go to churches too, but they're nothing like you. Why don't you be more like them? And one of our places of employment, a pastor works there. And our church was brought before their committee on uh, the issues that's surrounding this church. And they were having a group discussion. One young man who's in his uh, mid-20s came to our pastors, who's in his 30s, been pastoring now over 10 years, and said, you ought to leave that church. I'm concerned that you're in a cult. You ought to come to my church, the one that hasn't opened yet and takes pictures with the mayor whenever they hand out masks. And while they were taking pictures with the mayor, we were being threatened to have our church closed down. You ought to come to our church. Our pastor knows how to get along with people. He took his ten shekels and a shirt. We got a priest over here. Our pastor looked at him and felt pity in his heart. And said, young man, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm proud of my church. I'm proud of what we're doing. I'll sit down and do a Bible study and teach this to you. But I don't need your way out. I don't need your, your safe word to help rescue me from a cult. Just, get, just tell me the safe. I'll give you the safe word and we'll get you out of there. No. No, we're, we're not tied up and forced to be here. We're just giving up the idols of this culture. We're just pushing back against the idea that just because something works and shines and glitters and looks a little bit like Christianity, we're not here to follow it. We're here to invest our lives into the Word of God and test and see if it is what God is teaching us. Because I don't want us to have the impression that every big church is bad. And now that we're here, we're the only ones. Now that there can be blessings on all kinds of churches. And just because I preach with the way I do and the, the background I come from, we, we could call maybe theatrics, you know, the tone of my voice and this and that, doesn't mean this is the only kind of style a preacher must use. Jared had a different style. What we're trying to say is, are we dancing with the devil or are we in partnership with God? Because in our day and age, dancing with the devil can have a label slapped on it called Christianity. But it pleases the devil. 
Steve Hill used to say it like this, the devil loves to wake up people and get them to go to lukewarm churches. Because when they go to that lukewarm church, they'll be lullabied to sleep and then prevented from hearing the gospel more readily because when they hear the gospel, it will become such an offense to them because they've been so used to the lullaby of their lukewarm church. So Steve Hill said it like this. He says to the Christians in the morning, get up, get up, get up. you got to go to church. you got to sing in the choir. you got to listen to the pastor tell you you're going to be all right. Get up, get up, get up because I've got to deceive you and put you to sleep again. Get up, get up, get up. You've got a religious itch, and you've got to scratch it. Otherwise, you would be convicted. And he used to talk about the blind leading the blind. Those who don't know who Steve Hill was, he was the lead preacher of the Brownsville Revival in Pensacola. One of my personal heroes, he passed away some years ago. And he would say, the devil says, get up, get up, get up, go to church. Get rid of that religious itch. Ease your conscience. Feel consoled by other lukewarm people. Don't pay attention to the blind man leading you. And I would say that to us today. It's like we're in, you know, the Wizard of Oz. And here we have, you know, the person behind the scenes deceiving us. But really, they are not who they say they are. And we need to wake up. I'm not saying being hypercritical, but we need to wake up by the power of the Holy Spirit and see what's going on in church leadership today. Many of them are deceiving us because they're Levites that have been deceived themselves. There are many good people like Micah who are deceiving us because they've been deceived themselves. There are many people like the Danites who are deceiving others because they have been deceived themselves. So it pleased the priest. He took the ephod, the household gods, and the idol, and went along with the people, putting their children, uh, putting their children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them. They turned away and left. Keep going. Verse 22 as we come to the end. Vinny, would you come, please? When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. So, hey, man, you guys stole stuff from Micah. We're going to get together with Micah and come, come get it back. Verse 23, as they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, what's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? Look at this. The Danites steal the Levite, steal all of the gods, the image, the ephod, all of these things, and then they look back at Micah, who's coming to get his stuff. I told you this was a messy story. They look back at Micah, coming to get his stuff and they say why are you even mad isn't that what they tell you right now why are you mad about wearing a mask just shut up and wear one we took your freedom we took it we took it just shut up and wear it what are you mad about we took your job we took away your liberty what are you mad about that's what the devil is doing he is taunting us And he thinks that he's talking to churches like us like he can talk to Micah. But you see, we're not a Micah. We're going to take back what the enemy stole in the name of Jesus. We're going to command the devil to lose this nation, to lose the government, to lose the churches in Jesus' name. But listen, if you are a compromiser, just like the other compromisers, what do you say? What do you say as a church that's been compromising and now your people have left you and are now Hindu, are now Muslim, or are now New Age? And what can you say to them? Well, why, 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 did, you, why did you buy our church and make it a Hindu rec center like they did in my area? Literally, the world will look back at you and say, why are you mad? Don't you know that it's a dog-eat-dog world? Might is right out here. We're doing it bigger and better than you. He replied, you took the gods I made, my priests, and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? The Danites answered, don't argue with us, or some of the men might get angry and attack you and your family, and you'll lose your lives. So the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. Then they took what Micah had made and his priests and went on to Laish against the people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword, burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them 
because they lived a long way from Sidon, had no relationship with anyone else. It's like the old saying, First they came for these folks and I didn't stand up and say anything because I wasn't those folks. Then they came for another kind of people. I didn't stand up for those people because I wasn't that people. And then they came for me and there was no one to stand up for me. You begin to see exactly what the enemy's ploy is here. Put compromise into the church, separate us, and then just devastate everything. Take over as much as they can. And then they named that city Dan. They renamed it. They set up for themselves the idol, Jonathan. Now we know who he is, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. He was a person of honor and integrity. His sons then became priests of the tribe of Dan until, watch this, until the captivity of the land. Destruction eventually came to them. They kept that idol even up until captivity. I'm here today to tell you that pragmaticism in the end doesn't work. Humanism in the end doesn't work. There is a judgment day coming and there will be a day of reckoning as we learned in our communion message. And my friends, it doesn't matter how good it looks now and how good it might look for a few generations even from now if we live to see that. But in the end, judgment is coming to that way of living. Judgment is coming to that way of living. Early on, I used to be convicted over Willow Creek and what they were doing. I had nothing against them. I just would say to my fellow preachers, be careful with what they're offering you. It is pragmatism. It is the removal of the cross to put up skits and plays, things that won't offend. It's the removal of the Word of God for just a wise man said. Instead of turning to this passage, it's what a wise man said. It's, it's the changing of the standard of God to now saying everybody gets to come and serve first and then we'll sort them out later. So literally, you could have people in homosexuality, adultery, in the sound booth, doing things in the parking lot, working with your children, etc. And I said, be careful with this. And now, so many years later, the fruit has been exposed because the root was bad. Around that same time in the late 80s, early 90s, the head pastor, Bill Hybels, was making out with women while he was a married man, and the other women were married while he was on their trips from the very early stages. There was a spirit of perversity among the people. The staff used vulgarity. Drunkenness was prevalent. The leadership was in adultery. And just a few years ago, it got all exposed and they're trying to clean house. And I'm talking to a lot of the leaders because I live around there. A lot of these leaders who are leaving and finding new churches. And now that they're going to good churches, praise God, they're saying, oh, they're grooming us to accept LGBTQ. They were grooming us for the different messages that are becoming popularized now. They were giving us books by homosexual authors. You see, there is a plan and an intention in many of these churches to turn against the things of God and to do it gradually so that you don't leave and they're stuck with a mall they can't pay for. And unless God brings revival, mark my words, they will turn because the cost will get too high for these churches. They already don't preach the Bible anymore. It's only one step away before they start denying the Bible. I already have friends right now that are universalists. I already have friends that are pro-homosexual and they're still in ministry or at least attached to ministry because they are now convinced that they are right because somebody gave them 10 shekels, a shirt and some clothes and some food. And because someone said, you could be my priest, now they believe it. There was once some young man in our Bible college. He dealt with homosexuality. We taught him and preached to him. You'll find his review still on Google. Sadly, he died of some kind of a disease as a young man. But as he was here, we would teach and lead him. But he didn't want to give up his lifestyle. And on his way out, he said, I'll go be a homosexual pastor then. And that's exactly what he became. And as I followed him on Facebook, all the chills and all the Jesus feelings that everybody gave him made him feel he's right. You could go to his Facebook, and on his Facebook, it would say, I'm so happy you started this church. I never used to feel accepted. Now I feel accepted. I feel God's love like I never have before. 
What happened? He sold his calling for 10 shekels in a shirt. And I know by the scriptures, if he did not repent, he's in hell. Not that he deserves to go there more than me, but that the only ones that get to go are those who repent, born again, turn from their wickedness. Are you listening? The Bible said in Galatians, turn there with me quickly in closing Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Do not be deceived. There is a deception that is coming upon us. The acts of the flesh are obvious. And that you and I are not to be deceived by these. Go to Galatians now, chapter 1, verse 9. He says this is what the flesh looks like. But he told him at the beginning, don't be deceived. Look at it. Go up one more verse. Start it there. there you go. Verse 8. Go up maybe verse 7. Go to verse 6. I'm astonished that you are quickly deserting the one who called you. This is a preacher. Paul, you know, Pastor Paul, the apostle, the one who loves him. He says, I'm so astonished that you are quickly, not slowly, you are quickly deserting the one who called you. That young man who left our church and started that gay church, it was boom, quick, quick. And we've had people leave this church in sin, keep their Bible studies, and people will leave this church quick, quick to follow them. I've seen pastors say that now that they are fully behind the BLM and they are quickly giving up everything God told them to stand for, quickly shutting down their church, quickly to bow their knee to anything but God. I'm so astonished that you are quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning, you are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And evidently there are some people who are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert, pervert, to change, corrupt the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than what was preached to you, if you hear somebody preaching a gospel other than what Billy Graham preached, come on somebody, if you hear somebody preaching a gospel different than E.V. Hillard. If you hear somebody preaching a different gospel than Cesar Castellanos or Carlos and the Colonia, if you hear a different gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. You see, what is true about this story is true about our generation. It all started with somebody stealing something and a curse coming down. And we thought that when the, when the curse came down that we could somehow change it and do something better with it. But no, to get rid of the curse, we got to come back to God. If you go back to the story, if that mama, after she said that curse and got that gold back, that silver back rather, if she just would have dedicated to the Lord and to the real Levites, she would have protected her son, her grandchildren. She would have never got tied up with that crazy Levite. She never would have been robbed then by them Danites. And they never would have gone into captivity. Oh, to God, if there was somebody here right now that wants to reverse the curse of a generation chasing after the wrong things, and if there would be a person here today that would say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve God. We're going to preach the real gospel. We're going to do this until Jesus comes back. It's his way. It's your way, God. Come on, would you stand up and give it up for Jesus? Say, it's your way, God. It's your way, God. I'm doing it your way. Altar workers and band, would you come, please? I'm doing it Jesus' way. We're going to reverse the curse. We're going to stop it right now in its tracks. Come on, look at your life. Have you been deceived by pragmatism? Have you been deceived by humanism? Yes, the gospel will work in a lot of ways. It will work for the way that you might say is a good thing. You know, we'll build churches, we'll change lives in that way. But sometimes the gospel doesn't work the way you expect. Sometimes it leads you to prison. Sometimes it costs you, your friends, your job. If you've been deceived by, by thinking you're doing something wrong, just repent right now. Say, Lord, forgive me for thinking I'm doing something wrong because the gospel comes at a cost. If you're here today deceived by humanism and you're saying, well, you know, if it makes people mad, it must not be right. If I'm losing my friends, it must not be right. 
Would you repent right now and believe what Jesus said? Though your mother and father forsake you, though your brother, your sister forsake you, though your friends forsake you, he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He said, those who stand firm to the end will be saved. He said, you can't love mother, wife, husband, children, even your own life more than him. You have to love him, serve him first. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. I do believe you'll meet new friends. I do believe you'll get things that are better in the end. But don't be deceived by your momentary trials. A few moments. Is there anyone here repenting of pragmatism? Is there anyone here that needs to repent of humanism? And lastly today, would you just raise up your hands with me if you're ready to do what God calls you to do. No compromise. No compromise. We're going to cut it off at the root right now. Say, use me, Lord. Use me, Jesus. Pour me out for your glory. It's not what I can get out of you, but what you can get out of me. Oh, God, the chief end of my life is not my happiness, but your glory. It's all about your glory, God. Use my life, my family, like clay in your hands, oh, God. We're cutting it off today. We're cutting off the curse today over this nation. We pray for Willow Creek that there'll be a revival. Just like Todd White repented for not preaching the whole gospel, we pray for those leaders at Willow Creek and other churches like them to preach the gospel, for gospel preaching to come forth. If you need prayer, you can come from your seat right now for any need. We'll pray for you, but I'm going to close out and pray for a few more. Lord, we pray for these churches that haven't opened yet. They'll get on fire for you and open up. Give them courage. Give them strength. We pray for those, God, who are taking the pictures with the mayor, who are going to these council meetings and not speaking up. We pray, God, for a holy fire to raise up in them, no matter the cost, no matter the cost. We pray for those, God, who are like us, who are standing up against the Goliath of our day. These churches, God, will grow in number that the remnant will get strengthened, that you'll provide for their needs, that we'll find each other and unify, that the church of Chicago will arise and be an example to the nations. In the name of Jesus, we'll be starting our Bible college in this month in a few weeks. One of our biggest classes, over 20. Lord, we pray for the students rising up, that they won't be like Jonathan, selling out their ministry for 10 shekels, a shirt, and some food, God. That you'll rise up leaders in this house, O oh Lord. You'll rise up leaders, God, that will lay down their lives for you, for your glory, Jesus. Oh God, rise us. Raise us up, God, everywhere we are, on our jobs, in our families, in our communities, for the gospel's sake. We break the curse. We break the curse. Only one God for us, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's only one way to serve him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Few moments, few moments right now before we dismiss. Thank you for your patience. But I sense God doing something in our hearts right now. Jesus, 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 I've been tempted so many times throughout the years. Oh, God, to get those 10 shekels, a shirt, and some food to make it easy on myself and my family. Oh, Lord, I pray that you'll remove that temptation from me, God, and give me strength. Give me strength to always stand, to always stand no matter the cost, even if I lose everything, God. In the name of Jesus, I will stand for you, Lord. I'm not selling out, Jesus. Hallelujah.